Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode 153 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Wednesday morning, February 12th, 2020. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. I, 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 am, I, I have not yet resigned from the Justice Department in protest. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that. We, we need you in there, Steve, continuing to do your job at the Justice Although, Department. I mean, um, John Kravis was a classmate of mine in law school. Is that right? And is, a, is as good a guy as there comes, even though he went to Williams. I, you know, that, that, that he and I are friends, even though he went to Williams, tells you a lot about how good a guy he is. <laughs> are you, you wouldn't hold your friendships hostage to, to policy differences. Why, why look at us? I, hey, two of my groomsmen went to Williams. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we obviously are going to have some Trumplandia segment coverage uh, pr- uh, involving the Roger Stone uh, prosecutorial recommendation debacle and the mm, associated. Uh, you like that? I do. Yeah, well, that's a fun one to say. By the way, the other day I was using the word interregnum, uh-huh. and some people really give me a hard time about that. What do you think? Is that is that obscure? I don't feel like that's that. Were obscure. you referring to the period of English history from 1649 to 1660? I was using it in the more generalized sense, where you kind of can take any gap in rule to describe that as an interregnum. So I'm, I'm a little rusty on my Latin. Interregnum, the regnum part, right? Yeah, is, it's between kingships. Right. So so not like, you know, it's not like there's an interregnum when there's like no prime minister. So, no, but I thought that that was commonly used. Mm-hmm. Readers will tell us. Can you use interregnum not well, literally, not non-literally? Listeners, listeners Well, readers of the show notes maybe, of whom there maybe are like four. The show, uh, By the way, the show notes used to be funnier. Yeah, if you go back to some of the early ones, remember the one we had that was like partially redacted? That, that, that was know, funny. The guy who wrote the show notes really needs to step up his game. Oh, well, if they paid him more, maybe he yeah. would. Um, this podcast is not in an interregnum. I don't know. Is that <laughs> it's apparently too obscure? Listeners so, so, will so tell us what what break in in rain in raining were you using? Were you referring to as an interregnum? Oh, um, so the, the interregnum in like every major cabinet department. The, no, I was actually. It's it's. I don't know if I told you this. That I'm uh, co-chairing the search for a new rector at our church. Oh, <laughs> and so we've got had this long uh-huh. period without a uh, uh, a rector. And Tempe so, sede vacante. I I didn't go Latin because we're Episcopal. You know, we don't have yeah, to go Latin. Fair enough. But um, I I. <laughs> Did start talking about well, we've had this long interregnum, and people are just like, "What are you even doing, professor?" And they made fun of me. It's so sad. Listen, at least you call it interregnum as opposed to sede vacante. I don't actually know what that one means. That's the time when there's no pope. That's the to, oh, the, the time of the, the empty throne. Vacant, the empty throne, yeah, um, yeah. Right. It's the it's the time of the it's the time uh, between the the passing or in one recent case resignation of a pope and the. Uh, 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 before the smoke, the election of issued. the new success of the successor. Oh, that reminds me. I'm reading uh, just for kicks. I saw it the other day and grabbed it off the shelf at a bookstore. Uh, Canticle for Leibowitz, ah. um, which I can't recall ever reading before. It's about halfway through. No spoilers, please. Um, but I, I'll be curious to talk about that if, if you've ever read it or at least I have uh, not. Okay, well, um, listeners and I can engage on Twitter about it later. Indeed. So far, pretty fun. All right, what so are we, we going to do today? We got we got Trumplandia. Trumplandia. We've got uh, we've got Corona coronavirusing. Okay, so we will talk about quarantine stuff. Uh, we got more Soleimani legal fallout still. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll talk about the legalities, including reference to the uh, the legislation in the Senate, the War Powers legislation that, yep. that Senator Kane is and, and others uh, from both sides of the aisle raising are, are raising, if you will. Yes. <laughs> and uh, what about Omar Amin? Yeah, we'll, we'll talk, talk about, about that. The- that's a that's a listener request. Uh, we're going to be responsive to that. For what once. Else? What's that? For once. For once. Yeah, um, and I know. Then, <laughs> then, then we're going to have the part of the show called the um, Steve updates everybody on his ongoing litigation sagas because there's news in like three different things. You've got a lot going on. I can't wait to hear what, you, what you're actually up full to. Colors. Full colors. We will explain this podcast. Half has, this podcast has full colors. Half this podcast has full colors. We'll we will, explain that. We will explain full colors when we get there. But suffice it to say, I have filed too many briefs as counsel of record in the Supreme Court. That has definitely been demonstrated. I think you should wallpaper. You should take the covers and, <laughs> and like cover your wall with them. Oh, yeah. That's not that's not showy and snobby <laughs> and self-referential Maybe you should do that at home. I, I have a rule about office decorations, right? The diplomas yeah. go on the least prominent wall. <laughs> that's that's actually thoughtful. Right. Um I had, now, now, I mean, more probably just don't hang our diplomas at all. But, as, you know, as, i got to put them somewhere. As a 1L in law school, uh, when we were all applying for summer jobs, yeah. like mass applications, mass rejection letters, one of my uh, friends uh, papered the walls of his dorm room with his rejection ah. letters and then had everybody over. We were just having drinks and just like perusing the gallery of rejection. It's pretty funny. Um, there, there, There's more than one way to say, <laughs> uh, yeah, you didn't make the cut. Yeah. Although we were very impressed with your credentials, Mr. Vladek. 
All right. Um, then we'll be at Frivolity. We are, uh, one of us is caught up with Picard. The other one is me. Bobby. Yeah, the other one is me. Uh, I'm not. I'm ashamed to say, but I'm going to fix that soon. But we won't be able to talk about episodes uh, since the first episode. So two and three. So we can talk about sports and we can talk about the Oscars. Um, Oscars. Oscars. All right, and that ought to Rudolph do Rudolph Wig 2020. Oh, by the way, yeah, maybe we could talk about these uh, rule innovations the XFL is experimenting with. Have you paid any attention to this? Do we have to? Well, I'll, I'll mention a few. I think it's okay. interesting. It, anything maybe, that, maybe we can talk about the, the Fakakta proposed playoff baseball baseball playoff changes. That oh, I haven't heard about that. Okay, save it and, and tell me when we get there. It's so dumb. It's like it's like how they now do the NBA All-Star game. Like Pick your captains and then they pick the teams. What? For uh, for major league all star, like, you know, it's like the playoffs team, are all star playoffs. Like the the, the the like the team that with the top seed can like pick which of the like you know wild card and division winners it wants to play. Oh, that's okay. I want to I want to come back to that. That's interesting. It's dumb. Uh, so you say? Yeah. All right. Speaking of things that are dumb. Okay. Let's jump into it. Trumplandia. Um, quick rundown of what exactly we know has and hasn't happened with what appears to be. <laughs> And it's hard to understand as anything but a case of White House pressure on line prosecutors to change their position. Or even just DOJ, or even just like main office pressure on line Well, so transmuted transmuted clearly through the front office at Maine Justice uh, out to the U.S. Attorney's Office and and pressuring and directing, not pressuring, but directing people to change their position on recommended sentence. Um, Unpack that. What then happened? So Roger, uh, Roger Stone, right, was tried, convicted by a jury, um, right, of um, several counts of interfering with the federal investigation of obstructing justice, of threatening a, uh, threatening a witness. Um, and so Monday, the Justice Department, um, per standard practice, filed a sentencing recommendation um, that recommended a sentencing a guidelines-based sentence of somewhere between seven and nine years, um, with much of the enhancement coming from the witness intimidation part of the right. of the charge. And just to be clear about the guidelines. Yeah. This is the whole point of the guidelines is to create at least a framework of objectivity and predictability, where you match the the uh, standardized numerical assessment of how serious the offense is versus uh, prior history and other other factors aggravating or mitigating, yep. and it yields a grid like framework that tells you uh trace this line that line oh seven to nine years is the recommendation Correct. in this setting and now it's just a recommendation the judge is not bound by the recommendation although there's a whole lot of complicated case law about what the judge has to do to depart from the recommendation but um for those who react to this like that seems like an awfully long recommendation for a non-violent crime well it's not i mean no um, that part that part's just misinformed like right. this is this no is one denies does. that this is what the guidelines range Says. That's not true. There are plenty uh, of people on the internet denying that's what the guidelines range. If says. we're going to go there, so then I can never say no okay, one. Let me let me caveat my standard caveat. No one who knows what they're talking about reasonably the, the, denies the principled objection. The, the, the principle, not principled, objection of those who have some modicum of sense about what they're talking about is that the enhancement for the witness intimidation piece was not justified by what was uh, introduced and proven at trial. And all I'm going to say to that is that may or may not be true. It is hardly out of DOJ's regular daily practice to push for every enhancement for which there is a plausible, even if not 100% open and shut case in a sentencing recommendation. It is not like DOJ has a history of going soft in sentencing recommendations. Well, especially when someone's, uh, you know, when it goes to the as it as it here lying to investigators, yeah, etc. Right. So um, now four, yeah. the 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 recommendation was signed by the uh, four uh, career DOJ prosecutors, um, two of whom were permanently in the DC U.S. Attorney's Office, and two of whom were detailed as special assistant U.S. attorneys to the DC U.S. Attorney's Office from other offices, one from the Mueller investigation and one from somewhere else in the country, Illinois, Ohio, something. Right. Um, Anyway, um, this uh, by Monday afternoon, there was lots of noise in conservative newsland that the White House was very unhappy with the sentencing. I mean, so the the memo itself got news when it hit because a lot of folks were surprised um, after the White ha- after DOJ had not recommended an especially severe sentence for Michael Flynn. Um, when it filed the memo in Flynn's case last month, six weeks ago, mm-hmm. um, that this one came down. I don't think 
hard in comparison right. to similar it was crimes. It was kind of traditional rather than showing any. Yeah, right. right? Um, and this quickly got picked up by conservative news outlets. And by Monday night, the president was uh, all a Twitter about how unfair this was and how someone had to do something. And, you know, it, this it is really ridiculous. is amazing that the information transmission mechanism, if you can inject an idea that gets picked up by and, Fox News, right, especially Fox, then it, if it's interesting, there's a decent chance he's going to respond to it and it'll activate him. And he did. He, he tweeted about it, uh, criticizing it very, very directly. Directly. And then what happens? And then shockingly enough, uh, on uh, so by Tuesday morning, there are reports circulating in the news that uh, uh, the main office at DOJ is leaking. Uh, the front office at DOJ is leaking Tuesday morning that the sentencing recommendation is being reconsidered. Mm-hmm. Um, right, senior DOJ officials right. who would so not go messaging on the back to the White House like, okay, we're on this. Okay, we're on this. Um, but meanwhile, before the new memo is even filed, all four of the line prosecutors withdraw from the prosecution, and one of them, John Kravis, um, resigns as an assistant U.S. attorney. Um, right, uh, The first time I can remember in which all of the government lawyers on a case resigned en masse, um, clearly in protest of a decision that yep. was made over their heads. Yeah, I can't think of an example. Now, from a policy perspective, let's, let's unpack the issues that this Sorry, raises. One more fact, oh, yeah, one, one more, more factual yeah. development. And then, so, um, uh, after all four of them had resigned, um, a new sentencing memorandum is filed. Um, this one signed by a, a non-career or maybe a new career person. Or just a different person. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. Um, basically saying, um, we're not recommending a particular sentence. We think there should be prison time. But here are all the reasons why the memo we filed yesterday was just ridiculous and aggressive and overly. And we've, we've changed our mind. So basically, they, they don't want to put a new number out there because then you have something very specific to contrast. They say something less. But, and but that prison. was too much. Um, yeah. But they don't. They don't say no, time served. That's right. Yeah. Now, um, legally, before we get to the policy, right? Because I, I want to draw a bright line between the law and the policy here. Yeah. Legally, the next step is this goes to Judge Jackson, Amy Berman Jackson, mm-hmm. the presiding judge in this case, who's already had quite a few run-ins with Roger Stone over gag orders and whatnot. Yep. Um, she is under no obligation to accept the revised recommendation. That's right. She's under no obligation to accept the first one, and it is fully within her power to refuse to accept the withdrawal of the four prosecutors until she conducts a hearing into the circumstances of their withdrawal. So, you know, the real question to me now legally is, to what extent does Judge Jackson just sort of keep her head down, sentence maybe at the high end of the revised recommendation and go home? Or is she as pissed about all of this as just about everybody else is? Um, and, you know, wants to get on the record exactly what happened. She has the power, theoretically, to compel the attorney general to show up and testify under oath about what happened. So let's unpack what could happen there, because I, I don't think she should do that. Yeah. Uh, that I, don't think, I don't think that leads. Let's imagine. What do we think happened here? I think it's just what you said. Yeah. The president got unhappy because others are unhappy. He's unhappy himself, stones his friend, whatever, uh, and puts pressure on the main DOJ folks who in turn direct that you got to take this different position. It's, so also possible Barr, Barr, it's also possible Barr did this all even without a directive just, from the White well, House. But, but, well, but, he, got, he got the Twitter directive, and that's all the directive you need yeah. in this administration. Although, can I say one thing about yeah. that before? I just yeah, want to, yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of folks who have been sort of defending this nonsense, which, by the way, I just don't understand, um, have been pointing to Kerry Kupek's statement that the front office at DOJ was already reconsidering the, the recommendation before the president tweeted. And I just want to say, note what that statement doesn't say. Right, the, the president had yeah. Right. It doesn't just because tweeted. Right. Doesn't it doesn't mean they deny don't the possibility that before the tweet. There had been right. some other communication between the White House and the, yeah. main o- and, the, and, the, and the front office. So the idea of a hearing to investigate, like how did this come about, strikes me as pretty problematic, extremely sensitive. It's not remotely clear to me that the hearing would properly be able to elicit the details of communications between the president and the attorney general about this um, as a matter of privilege. Uh, I also think that even if that were somehow all out there, like what would we expect to find? It would be that the president said, I think this is a raw deal. The executive power is vested in me. You were all exercising derivative forms of my power and I want it done this way. So this is where the law policy thing comes in, right? So so I think you and I both agree, and I think almost everyone who knows what they're talking about agrees, that as a matter of pure constitutional authority, the president absolutely has the power – 
to order the Attorney General, the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia, and anyone working under them in this capacity in an exercise of prosecutorial power to take a particular step. Yep. Right. That it's you know, that's not. So, you know, this is not an argument. That what the president did is a violation of some statute right. or is unconstitutional. The argument is that it is incredibly toxic to a yeah. critical norm in our constitutional system, which is the idea not of absolute prosecutorial independence, but of sort of default general prosecutorial independence. So I think we actually totally agree on this, that what we're talking about here is yet another example of one of these immensely important policy and political norms that are not laws and certainly aren't constitutional constraints, but you realize once you have a norm transgressor, as we do, it turns out you might wish they were part of it. And one of those is the in, the relative political insulation of prosecutorial decision making. Uh, especially uh, in the line, the line attorneys and DOJ, you, you know, U.S. attorneys. And I think it's relevant in this regard that the Stone investigation in particular is a handoff from Mueller, right, where, where this all started as an investigation in a context where there was supposed to be actually some meaningful independence, right, where it was yeah. a special counsel who actually was insulated from direct supervision, it was only it's only now in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office because Mueller closed up his shop. Here's the funny thing. So so I'm taking the view with you that this is terrible that it was done, but it wasn't some ultra vires or unconstitutional action if if that's how this unfolded. Um, but the president has a whole separate power that's that's less controversial legally, right? So if he feels this way, why doesn't he just pardon the guy and put an end to it? I mean, I, I actually think that that would have been better here. Like, I, I think it would have been. Oh, far I completely less, like, agree because like, that doesn't transgress the norm in the right. same way. I, I th- so I think here's the problem. I think what happened was well, the other piece of it is NBC also reported last night that the same thing had actually happened in the Flynn case. It's just that the maneuvering and the interference happened before the recommendation was filed, so we never saw it. Sure. So the irony here is the only reason why we're even seeing any of this nonsense is because they're incompetent, right? Like if if you know, or or they no longer care as much. No, I I think I think somebody in the I think somebody at Maine Justice just leaked it. No, 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 no. I I think like I think the line attorneys, you know, I I don't think anyone lied to like I don't think it was like um, phone call to the U.S. attorney. Hey guys, are you working on the Stone sentencing memo? No, we're not. I, like I don't. No, I, right. Like I think someone at Maine Justice just wasn't paying attention to the fact that this was coming, as opposed uh, to Flynn. They right? were more on it. Yeah. Well, that, right. There's an. It, Whatever, never, no matter how malicious or incompetent yeah. you are, there's still a requirement of administering your business. Well, all right. So, but then I, I think it's worth taking a minute because not all of our listeners are lawyers to talk about why prosecutorial independence is such an important norm, right? True. That, that in the in the list of norms that we wish were laws but aren't, um, <laughs> right? Why prosecutorial independence is so high on the list? So, you know, my the way I try to illustrate this to folks is I say, imagine a world where the Justice Department only prosecuted members of the opposing political party for crimes real or imagined and never prosecute members of their own political party for crimes real, you know, real and real, right? Um, I don't think that's a world we'd be very happy to live in. I don't think that's a world that's conducive to the rule of law. And yet, if the president can direct, right, individual prosecutorial decisions, including in cases in which he has a personal vested interest, that's the world we're living in. Yeah, I, look, I, I think that the norm, that the importance of the norm should be clear enough. It does get tricky if we flip it around and imagine a different time and place in which a hypothetical president is actually the sort of the, the more trusted figure. And you've got some prosecutor who is not who's the one who has the the sort of the policy preferences they're enforcing through selective prosecution. And of course, you might say, well, in that case, that person should be removed. Yes. You don't have to then reach in and say, okay, I'm going I'm to micromanage your decisions right. from the if White the, House. If the, if the line attorneys are doing their job incorrectly, there are remedies, right? The remedies are to fire them. The remedies are to um, have their boss, right, the chief of their section or the head of their office right. step in and take over the case, right? There are, I mean, we've been through this. Now, this is not to say that line attorneys at DOJ are perfect, infallible creatures. To the contrary, you and I can cite dozens of cases where line attorneys have gotten They're overzealous. Human and, beings yeah. like anybody else. Right. The problem is that the answer to that, so they're all, you know, as with any other facocta thing this administration does, all of these folks are coming out of the woodwork to come up with these post hoc rationalizations for why this was perfectly appropriate behavior. And they're all full of crap. What are there? Tell me, are there people offering official accounts saying, look, the reason why it's appropriate to override the line attorneys is 
is are there people saying like because they made a misjudgment yes. and the higher authorities think that was too harsh and in they're the, entitled to their opinion but in the abstract isn't that a permissible position so, for them to take so let's and, say it was a you know a narcotics yes. prosecution yeah, yeah. and it's way too harsh yes. and main DOJ says you know what I don't think so the element that's different from that fact pattern in this one is the political personal loyalty interests that are being advanced and the appearance of impropriety right that that in a typical case that is not of high political valence right if a US attorney gets if an AUS it gets carried away. Right. It's right. partiality in the administration of the Justice Department. Exactly, right. I, I am not denying the president's power right. in exceptional cases to assert his authority over his subordinates. I'm not denying that there's a chain of command, right? The problem is, is that um, all of these people who are like, the sentence was way harsh. It's totally cool for the, uh, to my friends, where are you on all of the other way harsh sentences in our criminal justice system? Well, like, exactly. If, there, if, no, the, the, the hypocrisy I mean, of some of these the complaints. Same, right. This is the same president. This is the same president and attorney general who have been talking about how our, our, our criminal sentencing isn't draconian enough. Right in like drug cases, so I just spare me the notion that this is criminal justice reform. This is self dealing, and right. this kind of self dealing is exactly the kind of self dealing that Robert Jackson, in his legendary speech on the federal prosecutor, yeah. said is the worst possible thing that can happen to the justice. It's department. the sort of thing that is entirely typical of authoritarian regimes, yeah. and there's really nothing more that needs to be said than that. There isn't. Can I just say one more thing? Yeah, please. <laughs> I have been, as you know, increasingly frustrated by the dwindling number of friends of mine, right, who are not vocally anti-Trump. Um, and I am just trying to figure out what lines are left to cross. Like, what are they waiting for this administration to do before they say, no, you're right. You're right. I, I, you know, this is a bridge too far. And I just, you know, I understand that there are elected members of Congress who are Republicans who feel the need to kowtow to their base and so have no courage when it comes to standing up to the president. But to everybody else out there, like, what is the line for you if it's not running roughshod over the political, you know, uh, uh, politicizing the Justice Department to a point where you're interfering in cases in which you have a personal interest to protect your friends? Like, what, you know, what is the point of having these institutions after Trump if the legacy that he's leaving is that nothing matters except raw power? Well, I think you've answered your own question right there. Um, is the line firing the brother of a whistleblower? I mean, that's, so this is, you know, this is all coming on the, on the tails of all that stuff, right? So, you know, the, um, all those Republican senators who said, uh, what was it, Susan Collins, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm so sure the learned president his learned his lesson. Yeah, he learned his lesson. Not the one you think. No, that that was the that was in in quite a competitive field. That was an Oscar winner worthy baloney or dumb Hubris. statement. Um, so do you do you want to say anything about uh, the the, the the legal protection of of uh, Lieutenant Colonel Vinman? Um, sure. So um, you know the uh, uh, there are two right. There's there's both Alex and and Yevgeny right. Um, so uh, Alex Vindman, right, was the NSC staffer who testified, mm -hmm. I think, quite courageously, uh, right, as part of the House Intelligence Committee's investigation and impeachment inquiry. Um, so he and his brother were both fairly unceremoniously forced out of their positions at the White House, um, what, on Friday? Mm -hmm. um, now, I, I, here again, so, so I want to be very clear on this. Um, no one has a right to work at the White House. Yeah, they, they weren't fired from their status, were not, their jobs in the military. They were removed right. from these assignments. They, they were transferred back to their sort of right. uh, base assignments, right? right. Um, and, you know, in theory, that should not be a possible – you shouldn't be doing that for political retribution. Right. That bothers me less, right? Like if right. that had been the end of it. I would have said, right. you know, on the list of Trump's sins, yeah. But the president has since made multiple public comments right. to the effect that he's not done with them and that they're going to, quote, face discipline within the military right. now, for, um, you know, first of all, right, the, we're punishing the brother, right, for what the brother did. Right, right. So, so the, the blood taint is obviously ridiculous. Um, Secretary Esper, Secretary yeah. of Defense Esper, I, I believe, was quoted saying, no, not, you know, we, we don't allow retaliation or response against. Ago. Was it two months ago? Are you sure? I saw Esper, a Esper wrote a letter. Right. There's a letter. I don't I'm I, thinking about something I thought was a recent quote where he said, no, we don't have we don't have letter. retribution against members of our own. So I mean, so there's a letter yeah. Esper wrote in response to uh, some member of Congress. Right. Who was concerned about this yeah. where he said, you know, we will do everything. You know, we will protect our own like we will take it. Right. Um, 
Esper might have said something else. I haven't yeah, seen it. I thought I could be wrong. Um, um, well, okay, so the question is, but, does but, the so, law protect co- him? Well, so first, hold on a second. First, color me skeptical that if the president actually directs Esper to do something. I mean, you know, these are the same people who 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 made similar noises about not restoring Eddie Gallagher's service pin, right? And, I mean, that only cost the Secretary of the Navy his job. I think that it is not at all obvious that if the president says, I want some kind of, Secretary Esper, I want some kind of military yeah. proceeding to be initiated. I don't think it's obvious he does that at all. Well, I think it's very possible that he would that. resist that. Well, especially because in that context, I mean, that is textbook unlawful command. In right. Sports. So, um, so I actually don't. I don't. I think that, yes. Obviously, Trump is bloviating about this stuff, but I actually am, am very doubtful that uh, DOD mm-hmm. institutionally or at its senior ranks is going to go along with anything to go after. So they these may not court martial these guys, right? But if they even if they discipline them in any way, like that's when I'm going to get really that's nervous. What, that, and that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. I, it would be terrible. It'd be inappropriate. It'd be unlawful. And I don't think it's remotely going to happen. All right. So let me refer everybody to uh, the new favorite statute no one had ever heard of before: the Military Whistleblower Act. Moa. 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 So this is this is 10 U.S.C. section 1034, um, and so 10 U.S.C. section 1034a: No person may restrict a member of the armed forces in communicating with a member of Congress. Period. Now, uh, uh, two, uh, unless the communication is unlawful. Um, okay. Vinman responded to a, a congressional subpoena. Guess what? That was not unlawful. Um, 1034b: Prohibition of retaliatory personnel actions. No person may take or threaten to take. Threaten to take. We're, we've already crossed this Rubicon. An unfavorable personnel action or withhold or threaten to withhold a favorable personnel action as a reprisal against a member of the armed forces for making or preparing or being perceived as making or preparing a communication to a member of Congress that under subsection A may not be restricted. Question, fact clarification I'm seeking. In addition to or apart from communicating with members of Congress, yeah. which is the trigger that covers him and yeah. protects him, was Vinman early on in the whistleblowing process also communicating with anyone else? So there is are lots it, of allegations out there in right-wing conspiracy land. That yeah, but there's Vinman no was, proof, but right? there's no evidence right. of that. And so as long as he was only communicating with members of Congress, he seems fully under the cover of and, and, this protection. And, and the, the Whistleblower Act even goes on specifically to include as one of the things that's protected, testimony, <laughs> right? Testimony... Um, or otherwise participating in or assisting in an investigation, right? So yeah. even if he talks to House Intelligence Committee staffers as part of their investigation, as that wasn't part of his testimony, that's still protected by the missile. Milita- I said, and the just missile, to be clear, the, the mistletoe act. The first, the mi- let's call it that. The mistletoe act clearly, if I heard you right, clearly covers the initial yes. whistleblowing yes. act, yes. and and even more clearly covers all that follows yes. before. All right, so this is a, this is a non-issue. There's I mean, no way you know, this is going to go somewhere. The conspiracy theory is that he leaked classified information in violation of the Espionage Act, and to which my response is, you know, show me a shred of proof that that's true, and until then, shut up. So just, just shut up, everybody. So I, I think that it's probably wrong to categorize this as an initiative by the White House that actually is aiming to actually get the formal legal processes of, of job punishments, etc. I think instead it's a continued, it's just another note in the melody of this song that they want to sing that tries to delegitimize and make sound somehow unlawful to counterpunch against the whole effort to to criticize what he himself had done. And so the actual, the winning move is simply for, for Trump to make this allegation, to say these things. Hey, this got to be prosecuted. Lock him up, lock him up. It, it doesn't have to go anywhere beyond that. He's already done the thing he wanted to do. Okay, but then, I mean, so my concern is, look at how he treats Vinmin, the Vinmins, and look at how he treats Gallagher. What message is he sending to the military about Right, no, well, of course. You're, I assume you don't think that he is... Intending anything other than exactly the divergence you just point to. Again. And in trying to send narrative messages to right. his base my, my of the concern, same kind. I, I, for like the 4,000th time, let me say, my concern is not with Trump. My concern is with all of the sycophants and lackeys who are enabling him. So I think that's a good note to end on with our Trumplandia segment. Um, let's talk uh, just quickly, kind of a, a note on the coronavirus that hopefully uh, – we will never actually have to talk about in, in reference Oy. to the quarantine topic. Yes. But the other day I wrote something for Lawfare <laughs> to uh, answer preliminary. Highly recommend. Highly recommend. Uh, if you're curious about how does the federal quarantine power in particular work, um, 
And the first thing to say is that normally quarantine is a state law matter. It's a classic element of the state's police powers. It's the sort of thing that you don't necessarily look to the federal government to be doing. Um, but there is some interesting history here. And so just to kind of lay it out for you on the on the possibility that it becomes a bigger issue for us later on, it's obviously become a huge issue in China and in some other places. Um, and we do, in fact, have a few federal quarantines already underway. So how does it work? Um, historically, the federal government did have a role in implementing quarantines, calling for them and enforcing them. It was all tied up in military readiness. It was all connected to manpower protection during conflict. Um, so you can think of the Spanish flu, but... Um, somewhat humorously, not actually that funny, but still a little bit funny. Um, you also, both in World War II and World War I, have these references and actions that were clearly concerns about VD, uh, venereal disease spreading and associated quarantines, some of which, not funny at all, uh, there was at least some legislation that seemed to be designed to provide federal funding and and also assistance to civilian or state and local law enforcement actually imprisoning women as a way to try to prevent, I guess, the spread of VD into um, military encampments inside the United States. There's, so there's, there's some disturbing history there. I don't know the full details of it, but I mentioned that in case it piques your interest. Um, what was less clear was what was the federal authority to create a quarantine power if it was unrelated to the war powers? I think it's clear Congress has through the necessary and proper clause, uh, the ability to do manpower readiness related quarantining uh, if there's a sufficient nexus with the power to raise and support armies. Uh, separate from that, the federal power to quarantine at the border, I think, is pretty easy to establish uh, given congressional uh, authority vis-a-vis -vis border crossing matters. What's interesting is whether there is a legitimate congressional role in creating a quarantine power for what we might call internal quarantines that are of not civilians. related. Yeah. Civilian, unrelated to the right. military, unrelated to times of war, just there's there's an outbreak and let's try to contain it. Um, I think that under the pre-Wickard world of the old Interstate Commerce Clause jurisprudence, that was actually a little bit of a tricky question unless you had actual uh, interstate elements. But if it's a local outbreak in a local area, that was just classically left to the states. But of course, Jacobson since, versus Massachusetts. But then you get Wickard, you get all the modern sort of World War II onward innovations in the scope of commerce authority, where you can sort of aggregate just about any kind of activity that ties in with commercial life and show that in aggregate there are interstate spillover effects and therefore Congress can regulate it. And under modern jurisprudence, I think it's surpassingly easy to explain where the power to do it comes from. So have they actually done it? Yes. Um, there is a statute that creates the federal quarantine power. The long and the short of it is it's the CDC director yep. who is specifically authorized to declare that the conditions involving communicable diseases of a certain type. What type? Well, it's delegated to the executive branch to pick them out from time to time and enumerate them in executive orders. So interestingly, you've got some uh, sequence of executive orders over the 1940s up until the Obama administration, which bit by bit add this sort of significant threat and that sort of significant threat. With SARS, SARS itself was added to the list. And then in, I think, 2013 it was, the Obama administration quite wisely recognized that you could get non-SARS similar coronavirus-style respiratory syndromes that would pose the exact same threat. And without waiting for that to actually materialize, um, they went ahead and modified the executive order to list exactly this sort of thing in general. So now, in, in addition to things like typhoid and hemorrhagic fevers, you've now got the whole cluster of coronavirus-type respiratory syndromes. And so it's not necessary for the Trump administration to issue a new executive order designating this particular illness. It's already there in the executive order from Obama. All that was needed was for the CDC director to make a determination that in some particular circumstance, we needed to have a quarantine. And uh, he duly did so when Americans began to be repatriated from China on these flights that have brought various groups from abroad to, to military bases where they are serving out their quarantine time periods. Um, it's interesting to note, you always want to think about a power like this, like well, what if it's in the wrong hands? What if it's being abused? There are stories about China, for example, possibly abusing its quarantine authority to pretextually detain a critical journalist. Um, 
So you want to think about, well, how, how would that be guarded against in our system? The way that the statute works is, first of all, the, the director has to reconsider the, the director's own decision as to a particular person within 72 hours. And then after that, if the person wants, they can request a medical review. The director is going to pick the doctor or the medical expert who's doing that review. So a lot turns here in the first instance on who you think the director is, what are the qualities of that person, how immune from the prospect of corruption or abuse is that person. Obviously, we have no reason whatsoever to have concerns about the current CDC director, so I don't think we're remotely there. Um, I'm talking only about what, what could be. And, yeah, and, I mean, you, you know, it's, it's, we, you'd never have a scenario where a president interfered with an agency that, you know, had historically been free from White House interference. Are you suggesting that you think Trump would... I, I know you're not suggesting the current CDC director is anything other than a great doctor. Are you suggesting that Trump would be able to get away with uh, removing that person, replacing them with the hack who would do his bidding, and then have that person issue quarantine orders for political purposes? I mean, I think even Trump could not possibly pull this off. Uh, not yet. Yeah, well, I'll take that then. Right, I'll be right for now, even if not right forever. Um so then the question becomes, all right, but nonetheless, let's imagine that world. In fact, let's imagine that the coronavirus gets really, really bad inside the United States. And so there's widespread need for real quarantines. And for whatever reason, there's political unrest or it's election related. And under the, under the noise of widespread quarantining, maybe somewhere some one person does get that abusive quarantine treatment. They, they shouldn't be, yeah. but they're quarantined anyways. Yeah. Um, what's the legal way out? So these are these are considered final. Eventually, they become final administrative actions that can be challenged through the Administrative Procedures Act. But of course, you can also bring a habeas action. And the statute actually says nothing. The statute limits your ability to seek judicial review. So then you get to this interesting question about whether and to what extent the factual determination. And this should start to sound familiar to national security law types. What amount of evidence is enough? What's the burden of proof during the habeas process to prove that the person meets the statutory definition of detainability? And it becomes like a Gitmo style thing, but without any of the any guarantee that all the procedural and evidentiary trappings that have been developed over time for Gitmo would carry over into this other context. You would obviously have the executive branch arguing that tremendous uh, comparative institutional competence considerations favor not second-guessing the medical doctor, etc. But of course, there'd be a competing medical assessment that would argue the contrary. Um, I guess what I'm suggesting is that the ultimate safeguard against abuse of the federal quarantine power from the legal system's perspective would be habeas litigation. Yes. And it would and it would have, in the abstract, all the same qualities that Gitmo detention it's exa- I mean, litigation. It's, it's, it's classic executive detention. I mean, it's, yep. it's you know, the hallmark of... And so I've said this before, right, that, you know, Justice Scalia is often, you know, lauded for his dissent in Hamdi about how there's no mechanism to detain... U.S. citizens without trial. Like it's not, not true at all. It's not it's, true at all. No, the quarantine's a, the perfect example. And, and court is the perfect non-controversial example, right? Because, you know, we may dispute which circumstances rise to the level. But, right, we, but everyone agrees it exists. Like, no one, no one's out to seem like, no, the government cannot take people's liberty ever. in that situation. There, there are people who say that it should be that way. The libertarians might say, like, that just shouldn't be. Yeah. But it's clearly right. the law of the land. Yeah. Habeas. Well, let's hope all that was entirely academic in all respects. Listen, we have, I mean, our casebook, as you know, has a detailed discussion of quarantine authorities in the chapter on, you know, Homeland Security. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's... Yeah. Well, when the need is there, this is as serious as a heart attack. One thing I will note, this, I had, not fun's the wrong word, but I got very <laughs> intrigued in talking about what I called the quarantine dilemma. Uh-huh. Um, and China's bearing out how this works. And there's a parallel here I want to draw out to counterterrorism and pre... Uh, pre-attack interventions to arrest people you think are involved in terrorism. We all know in the counterterrorism context in our circles that there's a trade-off between false positives and false negatives. Um, if you want to really reduce the risk that somebody you think might cause harm eventually will cause harm, then you might be inclined to intervene as early as possible. But the earlier you intervene and pr- depress the risk of a false negative, the greater the chances that you've just erred because you're intervening at a stage where it's less clear what was eventually going to happen. It's the it's the minority report problem. Yeah. So you're getting more false positives. And that's a trade-off that's a real dilemma. Quarantine's actually kind of the same way. China did not immediately try to shut down Wuhan and keep to all the contrary, people. To the they, they prosecuted the doctor. For, right? for blowing the whistle. For blowing yeah. the whistle. Yeah. So, so they did not intervene super early. But, you know, politically motivated prosecutions always end well. 
So it depends on depends on what time and country, I guess, uh, how well that uh, turns out. And, Sorry, I'm just I'm just in the mood. No, no, no. I, I can tell. I can tell. Come back to me. Come back to me. Um, so China intervenes eventually with a pretty draconian quarantine, but it's much too late. And setting aside that even with the quarantine in place, people are going to uh, slip out anyways. Um, there are a lot of people that left Wuhan long before the quarantine set up. One of our UT colleagues, Dr. Lauren Myers, uh, she and her co-authors produced a study that basically demonstrated as a matter of data and probabilities that there's you know the following list of 100 plus cities where almost certainly somebody with the disease did get to. So what does that tell you? That earlier quarantine is better. If your only interest is preventing the false negative to, it, to make sure you don't have the harm later on, you intervene early. With quarantines, it's even harder, I would submit, to intervene as early as you really would need to to be truly effective. In other words, if you only wanted, you didn't care about any other values, no matter how much liberty harm there was, how much economic disruption there was, um, you could take draconian steps if you thought they were politically sustainable and get a real strong quarantine effect. Um, You'd have so much false positives. And if you're really acting early enough, by the way, the harm wouldn't have really materialized enough to create the political conditions to even do it. So like counterterrorism, counter-epidemic measures run into the same false positives, false negatives trade-off. And again, let's just hope this never actually becomes a more current issue for us to grapple with. But if they do, we'll have Bobby's helpful blog post to start us off. If if we're not all zombies by then. Well, yeah. All right. (laughs) We don't all become zombies at once, right? It's a progressive thing. Well, that's true. Somebody's got to be the one who runs from the other ones. That's right. Are you going to be a zombie? Which one of us is going to try to eat the other's brains, Steve? (laughs) <laughs> that's, that's dark. <laughs> well, you know, there's an episode, an early episode of the Lawfare podcast, where we just pretend there's been a massive zombie outbreak, and we go through AUMFs against zombies, and I think uh, Jen Daskal was on that. Um, I think it was me, Ben Wittes, Jen, maybe Susan Hennessy. Um, and, and at the end, the zombies actually break into my office and get me w- while we're recording. I mean, that's a lot better. In some respects, that might be better than than, than where, where we otherwise seem to be heading. <laughs> that's true. All right, lightning round. Lightning round. Uh, so we, we promised uh, one of our uh, awesome listeners, we talked a bit about Omar Amin um, and this really, I think, um, fascinating story by Ben Taub in the January 27th issue of The New Yorker. Um, do you want to say a quick word about? Um, so uh, Omar Amin um, was basically a refugee um, from Iraq, right, that he actually had come to the United States, um, at least um, basically um his cousin, I think, had been affiliated with Al-Qaeda and he was trying to escape the violence. Um, he was basically trying to find like safe haven, um, right? He ends up in the U.S. as a refugee, even though you have no control if you're a refugee over where you end up. Um, and now, right, the U.S. is seeking to deport him um, because of what it claims are connections to ISIS. Um, there's a whole fight over sort of, you know, how much re- uh, meaningful review there is in these cases, like what ability there is to actually challenge the government's assertion that refugees in this country um, actually don't deserve their refugee status or otherwise subject to deportation. I- I'm not doing the story justice because it's very long and it's very, I think, disturbing, especially in some of the respects um, in which it suggests um, um, Amin has been mistreated and faces persecution if he's removed. But I think it's an important window into the sort of human side of all these broad shifts in immigration policy that we talk about sometimes on the podcast um, and how, you know, there are very real people in these cases whose lives are, you know, potentially in grave jeopardy if they're removed from this country. This is a good time to remind everybody how it works when somebody's being removed or returned or moved across the border to the custody of another country. The international law rule is that uh, you, you can't do this if if there's an undue risk that the person will be tortured or otherwise uh, improperly abused upon return, the non-refoulement rule. Um, For the United States, for the British, for lots of countries, one way this is handled is to engage in diplomatic discussions with the receiving country and obtaining so-called diplomatic assurances, that is uh, written, I guess mostly written, sometimes maybe not, but, but assurances where the receiving state promises not to cross those lines. And one of the uh, huge issues of sort of circa 2005 to 2012 or so in that sort of mid to late Bush administration, early Obama administration range was in connection with extraordinary rendition when the United States would capture a terrorism suspect in one place and then and then turn that person over to the custody of another country. Right. Um, the question was, in, in where there was an, uh, an obvious risk the person might be abused, how could it be consistent with the non-refoulement rule to, to do it? 
And sometimes there was litigation, and the answer always was, and the answer the courts ultimately accepted in case after case was, well, the State Department says we we raised that issue. They have they have provided a formal diplomatic assurance. The State Department chooses to credit it, and the and the claim was that the courts can't second guess that, or at least shouldn't second guess it without further more evidence than they've got. Yep. And this became such a flashpoint. So that's where the law kind of settled for the U.S. courts' treatment of that issue. That's basically right. I mean, the, the and the one I'll say is so, and Amin's case in particular is an extradition case now um and the you know i think way back when at one point we talked about the the ninth circuit extradition mm-hmm. extradition case trinidad garcia versus thomas the filipino yep. case mm-hmm. um where the ninth circuit goes on bonk and fractures over how you're supposed to litigate a torture slash non-refoulement claim in an extradition proceeding um and yeah the 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 the, the, com- the controlling rationale of the fractured court was basically what you say that as long as the state department signs or you know dots the i's and crosses the t's um it's almost impossible for a you know extraditee to overcome the state department's assertion um that may very well be false right that uh the that the extraditee does not credibly you know doesn't it, that there is not a reasonable chance that the extraditee will be tortured or otherwise persecuted if he is returned to his yeah. home country to, to the to the requesting country um i have said before that i think those cases are wrong um, I think they're wrong as a matter of law because they're under-reading um, what's called the Foreign Affairs Reform and Restructuring Act of 1998, FARA, um, or FARA, FARA, um, one, Foreign Affairs Restructuring yeah. Act, I, one's yeah, FARA, yeah. one's FARA. Um, but I also think that, like, here's a human... You should roll your R to indicate the... FARA, 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 Pedro. This is why I only speak English. I was about to say... <laughs> Uh, That's awesome. Um, I, I don't speak any. I don't speak any languages, um, <laughs> including English. Including English. <laughs> um, so, really, really quickly, but I think I think that this case is sort of a very, I think, riveting and telling human uh, um, demonstration of why I think those cases are wrong. Yeah, I I, I need to spend more time with the article. Oh, yeah. I I, it, I don't know that the story isn't more complicated than than the version that favors him is, but maybe this is exactly right. That's what makes these such compelling cases. Uh, we passed over the the Iran issue. Oh, yeah, let's that just, one. Uh, let's say about this the following. So there's still going. There's a lot of talk of late about war powers uh, legislation. Uh, I think midday today, this bill associated with uh, Senators Kane, Durbin, Lee, Rand Paul, and now, now Collins as well. So it's kind of a bipartisan Democrats and at least some of the, at least some of the more libertarian Republicans, although then you got Collins as well, uh, kind of coming together around Senate Joint Resolution 68. Um, it it strikes me as basically being entirely symbolic yep. uh, and not actually capable of having much effect. And here's here's why I say that the the key moving parts there, there's two sections. There's a finding section, and then there's there's actually a part that looks operational because it says section two. Termination of the use of U.S. forces for hostilities against the Islamic Republic of Iran. Um, you got to start with the findings, though. And the findings in relevant part say um, the 2000, we don't have an AUMF that's specifically against Iran, which is true. Um, there's, there's a statement or a finding that purports to say that neither the 01 AUMF or the 02 AUMFs uh, are specific statutory authorizations to use force against Iran, which, depending on what you understand that sentence to mean, is either clearly true or or not so clearly true. Um, but I think probably as they've written it, it's true they aren't specific statutory authorizations, and that matters for war powers resolutions. Um, doesn't mean though that they're they're not relevant in a way that matters uh, constitutionally. In any event, um, there's then a finding that says that the conflict. Uh, between it refers to a currently existing conflict. The conflict between the United States and Iran constitutes, under the War Powers Resolution, either hostilities or a situation where hostilities is clearly indicated. And it goes on to say U.S. armed forces have been introduced into hostilities. Congress should decide this. And then the operational provision, Congress hereby directs the president to terminate the use of the U.S. armed forces for hostilities against Iran unless explicitly authorized by a declaration or a specific authorization. Um, never mind that there's a caveat at the end that we'll get to. But the problem is, what does it really mean to comply with that if it passes? Right. Uh, do you have to withdraw your troops from Iran, from Iraq, from counter-ISIS operations? 
it's pretty clear to me, at least, that the 01 and 02 AUMFs would still be cited as the basis for being there for other purposes. And the government would simply say, we are not currently deployed in a way that depends on the Iran target, but does depend on the uh, ISIS target, at least, if not also other problems now emerging in Iraq with instability there. So I I don't think this is written in a way that actually is even designed to compel an actual withdrawal. I don't think the authors are trying to get us to pull our forces out of Syria and Iraq. Otherwise, they would say so. Uh, But if if you don't pull those forces out of Syria and Iraq altogether, then it won't change anything on what really matters, which is our forces are there periodically, if and when there's either a basis, good faith or otherwise, right. to say that Iran is about to attack them or has just attacked them, or we have a long train of attacks upon them, then self-defense arguments, which have been made in connection with Soleimani and will continue to be made in these contexts in the future, no doubt, uh, will continue to be made, and this legislation won't change that in the slightest. And the fact that the legislation... the only way that it has a chance of passing. Well, exactly, right. Well, that's right. And I get it. Like I understand that people moving the legislation know these things. Uh, there's even a caveat at the end of the legislation that says nothing here, nothing in this section shall be construed to prevent the United States from defending itself from imminent attack. There we go. Which sounds strict until you know how over the years imminent is a term of art that's been construed to mean continuous and ongoing uh, streams of attack, not just the things that are literally imminent in a layperson's understanding of that ordinary word. So uh, I think it's actually nonetheless meaningful symbolism. Meaningful symbolism, least- but empty formalism. You're practically ineffectual, but symbolically effectual. Listen, I, as I said before, I'm all for Congress reasserting itself over the war powers. But, you know, yeah. if, uh, on the theory that there's infinite capital, I don't mind measures like this. On yeah. the theory that there is not infinite capital, exactly. come on. And I would add that it will seem to ordinary human beings like they did hearing something. this that they did something that they didn't really do. Correct. So I think that's actually corrosive. Woohoo! Yep. All right. Speaking uh, of corrosive, I have breaking news. Oh my god! Okay. I have really important breaking news. Tell me it's sports news. It is not, but it is frivolity. Oh, good. Okay, what you got? Um, uh, I just saw on the Twitter because I, as I was listening with rapt attention to you, you were also multitasking. I mean, this is how I get to watch TV, and you don't. Um, <laughs> but anyway, very important development. Sunday, March fifteenth, nine p.m. Now the Wait, time zone. The is Ides the, of March. The Ides of March. The deadline for uh, Pfizer renewal. The dead, well, or so, partial Pfizer renewal. I was let's be say, clear. Yeah, yeah. The, I the, hate the way everybody's like thinks like, all right, the Pfizer. Pfizer going to expire. No, we'll come back to that later. Okay. Um, 9 p.m. It doesn't say what time zone, which of course means it's hegemonical Eastern time. So <clears> 8 p.m. Central. Chronological colonialism of Westworld. Yes, Westworld. It's coming back. It's coming back. March 15th. March 15th. The free will is not free. We will be here we will for be, this. We, will, we are here. We may even have to record over spring break just so that we can talk about the season premiere of Westworld. I'll be, as soon as I'm back, I'll be, I'll be there for I'll that. I'll be back eventually. I'll, I'll be back, from, so, the, back so from the beach. March, so you have until then to get fully caught up on Picard. BTS. Yes. Oh, for sure. No, I'll, I'll knock that out this weekend. Okay. Okay, so we can't talk about Picard, but what can I, I, we I talk do about? Ha- wait, I, I do have to do my very quick litigation update before we get oh, into yeah, yeah, why, why people yeah, are on yeah. the show. So, um... You know, in various episodes in the past, we've talked about my many, many ongoing cases that really aren't that good of an idea because they take away too much time and, and Karen hates me. Um, so there have been developments in two of interest. One, um, remember Larrabee? Oh, yeah. Right? So the, the our challenge to the lawfulness of trying retired service members before courts martial. Reference not that long ago Indeed. on the show. So um, the Supreme Court had denied cert in our direct appeal in Larrabee last January, February. We had turned around and filed a civil suit, a collateral attack on Larrabee's conviction in D.C. Federal District Court. Um, we filed it in March. There had been a little bit of motions practice culminating with the government moving to dismiss and us moving for judgment on the pleadings that had all ended in May. And then we hadn't heard anything for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, so this Saturday afternoon, I'm at the Texas Texas Tech basketball game um, with my daughter, my nephew, <laughs> and my sister, um, uh, watching Texas race out to a, a 14 point first half lead. The better to blow the lead, my dear. Indeed. Um, when I get an ECF notification. Oh no! <laughs> the electronic court filing system Indeed. notification. Indeed, uh, at 4:30 on a Saturday afternoon, um, the, the that's not cool. The, the district judge, who shall remain nameless, um, issued an order um, scheduling a motions hearing 
for 17 days thence, hence from then, which is now, you know, less than two weeks from today, um, 13 days from now, February 25th, road in DC, trip, road trip. So, you know, after not nothing happening on the docket for like, oh, 10 months, we got a Saturday afternoon order for a motions hearing in 13 days. That is, uh, them's the breaks when you're litigating. Well, this is true. So, so I guess it t- took something off my bucket list. It'll be the first time I've ever argued a motion. Oh, it, is that right? I've never argued in a district court. I've, uh, I've gone backwards. I started at the Supreme Court. Yeah, you're working your way down the list. And then the Court of Appeals. Uh, I'll have you know that I am undefeated in motion practice in district courts. Want to know? I am one to know. It's not. It's not. Oh no, I'm one to know. No, no. Undefeated implies a victory. Yeah, like, exactly. I, it's not like the Hampshire football yeah. T-shirts. Undefeated since 1984. No, 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 no. no. You got to win at least one. Well, you got to be. You got to be capable of being defeated. That's right. Yeah. Well said. <laughs> um, so that's Larrabee. So uh, I expect we Congratulations. will get. Well, we'll see. We'll yeah. get some kind of ruling on the government's motion to dismiss and our motion for judgment on the pleadings wow. at some point. Um, Briggs, the Supreme Court case. I'm now arguing on March 23rd. They set the argument date since last we saw nice. each other. Um, we filed our merits brief today, um, which was congratulations. Thank you. Um, my very, very first ever council record uh, respondent merits brief. And what what color would said brief so, be? So this is what I was telling Bobby before the show. This is the stupidest, nerdiest thing to be excited about. But with this brief, I have now hit all nine of the possible colors of Supreme Court briefs as council of record. Aside, except the one that so only... There's one, right. So there, there are actually... So, trivia question, listeners. There are 10 different colors of briefs in the Supreme Court, but one is only filed by the government, and I don't really see a future as the Solicitor General of the United States. Oh, I'm... Is, listeners, that's for you to weigh in on right there. <laughs> it, within the next 25 years, how likely is it that Steve is Solicitor General? And here are your choices. Zero uh, percent. One percent, zero percent, or less than zero percent. Oh, I think it's at least at least the high single digits. What? Yeah. <laughs> um, President Bloomberg's probably going to call you up first thing. Do you know how many people are in line ahead of me for that job? <laughs> um, um, anyway, wait, but so, so okay, so you basically are telling me that of the ones you could get, you've got your nine for nine, your egot. I, I've I've hit the I've hit I've, I've hit as Starbuck would say. Full colors. Full. Oh, nice. Um, so, so uh, white, orange, cream, tan, light blue, light green, dark green, yellow, and today, light red. I think you, you need to like uh, have a t-shirt or you know, have a quilt made. <laughs> you need some kind of, there ought to be some way, you should have like some little badge or necklace of colors. You're, it's like you're, you're like a maester in Game of Thrones with your different different medals yeah, in your chain. You're, you're you gonna, need you're, to, you're gonna, I, I was fine. Can I get you like nine different colored wristbands and you wear them around and only the other egot like uh, Supreme Court busybodies. I am sure or, there are plenty of people who have all not, who have nine. The, the the real trick is is ten. Yeah, ten is ten like, is. A, you know, Neil Neil Kachial probably has ten. Paul Clement probably has ten. That makes you a grandmaster. You know, I'm, but I'm, I mean, the list of people with ten is probably not that long because you have to be either SG no. or acting SG, right? Right. At some point in a case. So that's the choke point. Yeah, ah, it's still pretty cool. I love it. That's some. That's some. It's not frivolity. That's, that's nerdistry. That's just nerdistry. That's just nerdistry. nerdistry. Industry and frivolity are circles that overlap a bit, but Venn they're diagram. not coextensive. Yeah, yeah, totally yeah, Venn. Totally true. All right, so let's so let's, let's move from the nerdistry circle to the frivolity, frivolity circle. circle. And so talk some Oscars. Oscars. Um, okay, are you disappointed with anything? Is there anything you felt was a miscarriage of justice? Um, a miscarriage of justice. Let me let me, let me so, qualify <laughs> that because before you talk about lacks of, of justice. Yeah, right. In in terms of who actually won from amongst those actually nominated, do you feel like there was a you know a robbery that you know? It should have been this film, not I that film. I didn't love Joaquin Phoenix winning for the Joker. Really? I yeah. thought that was such a – just is it too chalk, too yeah, obvious? a little chalk, chalky. Did you have a favorite who ought to – No. I mean, I haven't seen enough of these movies to really to really say. Um, Laura Dern, I was okay with. Uh, I, I actually thought that was well – I thought that was really well deserved. Um, um, man, no, Parasite. I mean, I was you – know, for once, the Oscars got it right. Like Everyone woke up Monday and was like, wait a second. We're so used to waking up Monday and hating on the Oscars, the, and especially the way the nominees went this year. It was like, oh, it's going to be another one of those. And then they actually got it right. So I am right now halfway through watching Parasite, ah. and so I don't actually I haven't I don't have a, a full opinion on it yet. So far, I really like what I've seen. I just love that, as I understand, the last thing that the director said was like, you know, I'm going to drink all night. Bye. 
It's <laughs> exactly how those uh, those speeches should go. Indeed. Um, I thought uh, Brad Pitt's speech. You know, he's been on this tear lately. Everyone's everyone's yeah. back excited about Brad Pitt, yeah. but also noticing how funny and interesting yeah. his speeches are. Either he's the, the, Bol- the Bolton shot he took. Uh, that wasn't the funny part. That that yeah, was just like fine. typical Hollywood. Hey, I'm going to take a shot at, at the the White House while I'm accepting an award. I saw in general. Uh, yeah, exactly. Fair enough. Yeah, is there a difference? Um, funny that I blended the two, isn't it? Um, I just thought that was actually great. I, I like it that Brad Pitt's having this moment. He's aging to his role. I loved all the things he said about Leo. I'm riding your coattails. Yeah, I, I yeah, liked all that. Yeah. Those, those, those are two blasts from you know earlier years. Uh, not big time actors who are more like pretty faces who yeah. have actually aged greatly. But into I, want, acting. I want more Mahershala Ali and I want more Regina King. Uh, awesome. Mahershala is awesome. I mean, yeah, I became such a fan after after True Detective, of course. Which you were initially resent, reluctant. Oh, of course. About. I was like, ah, how good can this be? Have but I steered you wrong on television? No, actually, you, you've you've actually got a good record with me. I'm trying to think. I on a, Do you think the 1917 got... Uh, a little bit of a shaft? A little bit. I especially, Like cinematography, I, th- yeah. Yeah. I thought it was yeah. going to go that way. Yeah. Although it didn't get shut out. Only the Irishman got shut out. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, as I said before, I'm biased in that because I, I tend to trust Jack Goldsmith's assessment of the factual situation yeah. and therefore it just bugs me that the factual predicates in Irishman aren't consistent yeah. with Jack's version of events. Um, music? So I was surprised Elton John won. Yeah. Um, we're, I kind of can't believe the Frozen song didn't win. Yeah. Did you? Okay. I, I got to say, the, I, I thought the, that I was great. That. So other than all, that, they, they had all the Elsas. The only problem There's was a show Adina, title. Adina we got this podcast has all the Elsas. This podcast has all the Elsas. Um, um, the only problem was Adina Menzel was off. Like her timing was off. She was ahead of the music. Um, was, that's an earpiece and technical problem. And you can problem. you can often see people. And I saw someone else do it that night. Oh, Eminem kept doing it, trying to adjust his earpiece. Okay, so can we talk about. So can we talk oh yeah, about can Eminem? we please? Okay, so, this says all the else's and none of the M and M's. This podcast, but no M and M's. Yes, but should I say M and M's? Not M and M. This podcast has all the else's, but no M and M. No M and M. Um. So, so okay. So why? Like why? Yeah, that was my reaction. I don't like, understand. Like so, so. When it started, I was like, "This is the lead in to lose yourself." Why? I know. Why, why is it? Is, did, did I wake up? Did I? Did we come back from commercial in two thousand and two? I mean, I get it. Like, because the, the whole the whole montage is like iconic songs for iconic films. But I'm sorry, my objection is if I'm that of like the most like iconic Eight song, Mile. Yeah. And I'm mean, like, I actually like that song. It's a great. Good that song, was a great jam. Good movie. Um, Entirely. When I, when I was 22, I thought it was the bomb. It it is. It can't possibly be of a stature with a lot of the other things they were using in the montage. Um, but I guess they figured like, yeah, we we need someone to come live. We can't get Simple Minds to do it for some reason. So, which would have been much more fun. I mean, so let's let's look up all the songs that won best best original song from like 2000 onwards and see if we could do better. Right? Yeah, I can't mean, you get a little better than that? So you talk for a second. Let me see. But. Um, um, what else? Yeah, well, all the else's was charming as could possibly be. I love all the repeated, you know, digs at John Travolta for yes. being unable to say her uh, name. Josh Gad was hilarious. Josh Gad was great, and the audience was not laughing though at his lines. Did you notice that I he did. was dropping some good lines, and it was falling pretty flat. And you I could, didn't mind. It almost you could almost tell it sort of bugged him. Um, um, Steve Martin and Chris Rock, their bit was pretty was pretty good. Pretty good, not great. It was. Um, Maya Rudolph and Kristen Wiig. I oh mean, my God! Let just let their them host timing, the Oscars. Their timing is unbelievable. When they went into the song, yes. that was hilarious. We're, yeah. we're acting. We're acting. <laughs> yeah. All right. So That's here we go. Um, best song from 2000 onwards. Let's 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 pick everyone that would have been a better, better? choice. Okay. I'll, I'll give you, you you nominate and I'll vote. Okay. So 2001, Randy Newman. If I didn't have you, no, no. no. Uh, they had they had Randy Newman already. Right. He's not looking so good. Into the West by Annie Lennox. Nope. Nah, okay. Uh, 2004, El Otro Lado del Rio by uh, Jorge Drexler. Maybe. Mm. Um, 2005, It's Hard Out Here for a Pimp from Hustle and Flow. That would be fun. <laughs> that would have been more fun. Um, 2006, Melissa Etheridge, I Need to Wake Up. That would have been pretty good. Yeah. Um, uh, Falling Slowly from Once. That would have been kind of sad. Um, Jai Ho. Yeah, now that would have been fun. Well, and, and they had it in the montage. They had it in the montage. But they could have redone the montage. Well, you could have done a whole Bollywood deal. It would have been great. Yeah. That's right. Uh, let's see. The Weary Kind, no. Wow, Randy Newman wins a lot. He um, does. Man or Muppet, no. Adele. Scott wait, oh, wait. Did you did you say Man or a Muppet, no? Come on. How great <laughs> would that have been? <laughs> um, let It Go, Jason no. Because Adina Menzel had literally just sung. Um, yeah. Glory, Common and John Legend. Get them back up to sing Glory from yeah, Selma. That'd be good. Yeah, that'd have been good. Um, uh, okay, anyway. I, All right. You get, well, you get the point. I just saw the time, so I need to race to the airport because oh, I'm going to see bye. our friends at uh, your old stomping ground. So, are you going to the AU Tech Society? So, yeah. Lunch so, maybe? let's give a shout out here, uh, Jen Daskal and Alex Joel 
and Gary Korn uh, have got, uh, I believe it's called the the uh, the Tech Law and Security, the Center for Tech Law and Security. Is that it or, or some combination of those? Anyways, what a team. What an amazing team. They're hosting a launch event tomorrow afternoon. I'll be on a panel with some wonderful folks uh, moderated by Ellen Nakashima. We're going to be talking about disinformation and cyber operations, election protection, the whole the whole nine yards. Um, I'm really excited to see everybody there. The first place we did a live podcast. And so uh, your former school and our, my, our, four, my former something grounds, our friends up there, I will give them regards. Uh, and hopefully we'll, by the time this is posted, I won't actually, <laughs> hopefully I'll get this posted today and uh, I can report next week on Post how it from it the goes. airport. But if you're in DC, come out tomorrow afternoon to, yeah. uh, to American university, Washington college of law, to the uh, 4300 the, Nebraska Avenue Northwest, right over the red line, stop in Tenley Town. And this time, maybe I'll find it right and go to the right building. I screwed it up last time. Um, wish me luck. Why, why do you think whenever we're traveling together now, I like don't let you leave my side? Hey, but but I have more help now, as you know, and uh, I actually even have a good boarding pass for Southwest. I actually, got it. I got an A23. I don't know if I've ever made the A group before. I, I feel so fancy. Are you proud of me or what? My little Padawan. I, I couldn't, be, honey. I couldn't be prouder than if it was based on actual grades. Thanks, dear. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. Well, on that note, uh, he is at Bobby Chesney. I am at Steve underscore Vladik. Uh, we are at NSL Podcast. Oh boy, stay safe out there. Adios. A twenty three. You might even get like an aisle. <laughs> I just, I, I'm so proud of you. I just, I, yeah, I don't even know what to say. I know, and I even know where my hotel is and the whole deal. Wow. Um, all right, so.